Blog Talk Radio. This is the gist of freedom with Manisha Sinha, Draper Chair in American History and the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. I will be talking to you every third Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Black History and Current Events. You can find over 500 archive shows of the Gist of Freedom on blackhistoryuniversity.com. I look forward to spending every third Saturday afternoon with you. Hello, everyone. This is Manisha Sinha again uh, for our second episode um, on the Gist of Freedom. It is still Black History Month in the United Kingdom, and we have a lot to discuss uh, in terms of current events, but also some of the history behind uh, present-day political controversies. So this country recently celebrated, or I should say marked, Indigenous Peoples Day, which was known as Columbus Day. But historians researching Christopher Columbus have shown us that he committed atrocities against the Indigenous people and that we should not be commemorating him, that it is no mark of respect even for our Italian-American community to remember his atrocities in the New World. Um, So when we look at a figure like Christopher Columbus, it's important to remember that at that time, many people deplored what Columbus did and what many European nations did in terms of dispossessing Native Americans and enslaving African Americans, and none more so than African American people themselves. One of them that I write about in my book, The Slave's Cause, um, in the first chapter on Prophets Without Honor, was a man of African descent, Lorenco de Silva, and he petitioned the Pope for the rights of people of African descent and to criticize their enslavement. This is one of the earliest abolitionist petitions that we know of. And it was written by an Afro-Brazilian man. I think these are the stories that we need to remember from that time period. We don't need to commemorate a man like Columbus who did not, quote, discover the new world. Um, It was already inhabited. Uh, In fact, Columbus uh, thought he was going to India, but he landed up in the New World. So, you know, I think it is important for us to go back to this early period of history, the 16th and the 17th centuries even, the colonial era, and look at the origins of the abolition movement. And if you dig deep, you will find that this movement began amongst people of African descent, that one of the first, one of the earliest, I should say, abolitionist petitions was forwarded to the Pope by an Afro-Brazilian man, Lorenco da Silva. And perhaps we should remember da Silva better than we remember Columbus today, because it is the people of the country that, after all, uh, make this country great. Uh, It's not to go back to some imagined past when, in fact, we struggled with a lot of inequalities and a lot of evils. 
including the evils of slavery, of Jim Crow, and disfranchisement. Um, we want to make sure that we assist the population of this country, and that's a message that I think Representative Cory Bush has sent out loud and clear. But what is remarkable is to see somebody like Congresswoman Cory Bush, who has experienced in her own life tremendous hardship, tremendous poverty, stand up and fight for this bill to be passed, a bill that would provide a safety net for all Americans, black and white and others. Um, every advanced de de democratic country in the world has a secure social net for their citizens. We don't. And part of the problem is that many opponents of these measures portray it as something that will only help African-Americans or others who are apparently undeserving. But in fact, these bills and the measures contained in them will help all Americans, especially those who are struggling in this time of pandemic. Um, and I think that somebody like Representative Cory Bush um, actually represents this vast section of the country that is struggling for help. It is really important for us to admire some of those tactics that these congresswomen have taken, including protesting at the steps of the Capitol, demanding action from our representative body, from Congress. And she did it virtually alone, uh, even though she had excuse me, the support and sympathy of many of her fellow congresswomen. Um, we know that we can actually um, see how this sort of individual protest also occurred during the 19th century. And I write about this person in my book, and his name was John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams had been the president of the United States. He lost the elections um, to Andrew Jackson um, and was elected as a representative to Congress from Massachusetts. And he virtually alone defended the right of abolitionists to petition Congress because Southern slaveholders wanted to institute, and they did institute, a gag rule on abolitionist petitions coming to the House and in the Senate. This gag rule basically said that the Senate would not even listen to these petitions, but in the House they would just not hear the petition but automatically put it into a committee. After a few years they had a complete gag where they would not even send it to committee, they just would not receive any abolitionist petitions. The man who defended abolitionist rights to petition was John Quincy Adams. Many of these petitions were signed not just by white men, white and black men, but also by women and by African Americans, most of whom were disfranchised even in the North, except for a handful of New England states, black men could not vote. Um, so these petitions were a way for them to put their concerns in front of Congress. But slaveholders in Congress did not even want to listen to them. 
and John Quincy Adams, as a matter of actually virtually individual protests, devised all kinds of tactics to get around the gag rule and to make sure that these abolitionist petitions made their way into his speeches. He was censured by Congress many times. He was threatened for his life uh, by slaveholders and other conservatives, uh, but he persisted. And finally, in uh, 1844, they managed to overturn the gag rule in Congress against abolitionist petitions. So Representative Cory Bush's uh, lone act of protest really did remind me of the way in which John Quincy Adams would stand sometimes virtually alone. Sometimes he was supported by a handful of anti-slavery Whigs, uh, the Whig Party um, existed then. Um, but on the whole, he did it virtually alone. So it reminded me a lot of her. I also want to point out that during this month, President Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama um, broke ground for their presidential center in the south side of Chicago. I can't think of a better example of uh, President Obama investing his capital in the community that supported him and that really uh, honed his skills uh, as a politician, as a community organizer, and as a leader. Um, I think this project, even though it was the focus of some controversy initially, will be a boon to the south side of Chicago. It will invigorate that neighborhood, uh, and it will certainly help young people in the neighborhood to really reach for the stars. How apt is it that the first black president of this country should have a groundbreaking of his presidential library in the city of Chicago. Chicago, the black metropolis. It was in fact founded by an African-American. Not a lot of people know this, but the city of Chicago was before, of course, there were native Americans um, in uh, that area but it was actually settled first by a black man and a black man by the name of Jean-Baptiste Dusable. He actually was the first settler of what would become the city of Chicago. He was in a way a founder of the city of Chicago. Um, and there are statues and paintings of him Um, there are people who recognize his his pioneering role in settling uh, the city of Chicago. So I think it is really important for us, as I sign off today, and commemorate the groundbreaking of the uh, Obama Presidential Library in Chicago to remember that this black metropolis was actually founded by a man of African descent, Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable. The other topic that I want to address today is this manufactured controversy over critical race theory by the Republican Party. 
uh, and by certain right-wing activists. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a concern that is generated by parents or teachers. In fact, it is a political controversy manufactured by conservative right-wing activists. They many times invade school meetings. Um, they protest at schools, disrupting students walking to school. Um, I think it is shameful. These people have no shame. Not only do they protest against sensible mask and vaccine mandates to protect our students and teachers, but they are also protecting the content of what we teach. And this has become controversial, particularly in teaching American history. And as a historian of slavery in the Civil War, I am really alarmed at the road that many of these red states are going down. Um, they are a lot like many authoritarian regimes in the past that want to control the dissemination of knowledge. And that is very dangerous in a democratic society, to try and dictate some sort of mandated, state-mandated education. So they're going after teachers, they're going after professors, uh, they're going after scientists when it comes to the pandemic. Uh, they have really lost their reason. They have lost they have forgotten that the American Republic was born out of the Enlightenment, uh, out of a respect for reason and facts and the opinion of mankind, that it is based on the separation of state and church. Instead, they have medieval notions of what can be taught and how we should treat our citizens. This has reached a head recently where I heard that in Virginia Beach, um, there's one school administrator wants to ban the novels of Toni Morrison. Now, even if you haven't heard of Toni Morrison, uh, which would be surprising, who passed away recently, um, you know, Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize in Literature. She is respected not just in the United States, but throughout the world. And to suggest that we should ban her novels is appalling to me. I've also heard recently that in Texas, a school teacher apparently said that when you teach the Holocaust, you need to teach both sides of the story. I have no idea what she meant. Does she mean that we need to teach the history of the Holocaust through the perspective of the Nazis, the perpetrators of one of the worst human atrocities in world history? I'm not surprised that they would be seen saying that in Texas because they have tried to both sides slavery as if there is a slaveholder's perspective that is justifiable. Now they're doing it with the Holocaust. Uh, they have done it with the January 6th insurrection as if it was just a political dispute and not a concerted, armed, and illegal attempt to invade our capital and to overthrow our government. It's really important that American citizens remain awake and alert to these attacks on our democracy, to these attacks on the freedom of speech and academic freedom. As a historian, I cannot stress how important it is for us to tell complete, uh, complex, and nuanced histories of the United States, that we include all those people who had been forgotten for a long time when we told the story of our nation's history. 
Because when you do that, when you leave out people, when you leave out entire topics, you actually do a disservice to your country. Dissent has always been the highest form of patriotism. We know that in the past, abolitionists, anti-slavery politicians who challenged the place of slaveholding and slavery in the American Republic only made this republic more perfect. Goodbye. It was a pleasure to spend an hour with you this Saturday, and I look forward to talking to you again next month on the third Saturday of the month. Till then, stay safe.